It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. This week, the Supreme Court made it more difficult for immigrants to challenge their detention in court while their deportation cases are pending. In a pair of cases, the court ruled that immigrants can be detained indefinitely without bond hearings and that they can't challenge their detentions by banding together as a class. During oral arguments, some of the justices like Stephen Breyer expressed concerns about indefinite detention. Everybody gets bail hearings that you're going to detain for a significant amount of time. Every criminal case. Debtors used to in debtor prisons. Mental people being confined in hospitals have the equivalent. Where you're going to detain a person, not even a criminal. You know, for months and months and months. Why aren't they at least entitled to a bail hearing? But several justices suggested the proper procedure would be for the immigrants to file a habeas corpus petition where a judge would decide the issue. Here are Justices Neil Gorsuch and Amy Coney Barrett. I I did not understand Mr. Rayner to contest that a habeas petition seeking relief on a constitutional ground could be entertained by this court on the basis that... um, Uh, detention has lasted too long without sufficient explanation. You know, if you're bringing a habeas action, you do have a judge. You have a truly neutral uh, decision maker, as Justice Gorsuch is suggesting, not someone who's a member of the executive branch. Joining me to sort through these decisions is Leon Fresco, a partner at Holland and Knight and formerly head of the Justice Department's Office of Immigration Litigation. Leon, were these decisions a one-two punch for immigrants and immigration advocates? Absolutely, June. It was definitely a very difficult day from the standpoint that the immigration law, I would say if you were looking at it during the period of somewhere between 2009 and 2015, 2016, both of these cases would have been decided completely the other way. And now the Supreme Court has changed and the ethos has changed. And now you not only have these 5-4 decisions, but you actually have decisions with liberal justices signing on to them that are sort of cracking down on immigration lawsuits. And from that standpoint, it's a whole new, completely different world than it was before. One case was unanimous, 
and Justice Sonia Sotomayor wrote the majority opinion. The other case on class actions was split six to three down ideological lines, and Justice Sotomayor dissented. We don't often see Justice Sotomayor writing a majority opinion in immigration cases. Well, it's certainly unusual in this court, and it's certainly unusual in a case where it's restricting rights of non-citizens who want to file lawsuits. If you would have had some sort of wager in a casino two, three years ago that Justice Sotomayor would have written a decision making it more difficult for non-citizens to have a right to be released from detention, that would have been like 70 to 1 odd. And now you have such a decision. And so really, this was a tough day for the advocates in the immigration world. So why? Because we hear her voice in the second case where she's an advocate for immigrants. Was it because of the text of the statute in the first case? In this detention regime, nothing anywhere in the statute talks about bond hearings and burden of proof and anything else. So if the court was being asked to make a decision, does this statute actually require bond hearings? Does this statute actually require the burden of proof to be on the government? It's not intellectually honest. You can't look at a statute book and read any of that because none of that's in there. So it seems like in that context, the liberal justices gave in and said, look, this might be a place where we might want to build some credibility and some bipartisanship and come together and say, the statutory regime doesn't work there. I do think that's the intent, because otherwise I don't think you would have seen this decision, because the path of where these decisions were going in 2014, 2015, 2016, were in giving expansive rights to non-citizens to have bond hearings. And now here in this case, what the Supreme Court is saying is, we are going to make People who are in detention for extended periods of time go through the process of either hiring a lawyer and filing a federal habeas corpus petition, or they'll have to figure out how to do it themselves pro se to file these federal habeas petitions. But we're not going to just skip that step and make it easier by sort of presuming that in six months you get a bond hearing because the statute doesn't say it. And so if the statute doesn't say it, we can't as a court start asking adding things that aren't in a statute, that aren't in a statute. It sort of makes sense from a literal point of view, but from a practical point of view, what it's doing is, is it's putting a lot more onus on the foreign national who's detained to either get a lawyer and have to file a federal habeas complaint, which is a pretty hard and work-intensive, and it's either expensive or you've got to find some pro bono organization that has resources, or you're going to have to figure out how to argue your own federal court habeas petition in order to get yourself out of indefinite detention. And so that's the impact of that decision. And we have to back up a little here. Explain the first decision, the, the first- facts and what's going on. Right. So what happens in this Artiaga Martinez case is as follows. You have individuals who have actually been deported from the United States, and then they come back in and they say, during the time that I was deported and now that I'm coming back in, something has happened whereby I'm now eligible for relief from deportation because I'm going to be persecuted in the country that I'm fleeing. Now, those people can't get asylum, which is a relief that gives you a path to citizenship, but they can get something called withholding of removal, which says you can stay here 
here in limbo until your country has better conditions than what it has today. But what happens is if you reenter after you've been deported, you are to be detained in the statute for as long as it takes for this proceeding to take place. And so what was happening is for some people, they were being detained for so long that they started filing habeas complaints in federal court saying that they should be entitled to a bond hearing and that that bond hearing should determine whether they are actually someone who is going to be dangerous or is going to be a flight risk. And if not, they should be released. And so there was actually decisions from the Third Circuit and the Ninth Circuit saying, look, we don't want thousands of these habeas decisions coming to our federal courts, so we're just going to make a presumption that after six months, you get a bond hearing, meaning the government just has to give you the bond hearing after six months, and they have to decide whether you are a flight risk or are dangerous. And the government appealed these decisions, and what the Supreme Court said is, look, there's nothing in the statute that talks about any of this. This is literally all made up by courts. We get why courts are making this up, because it's a convenient thing to just say, in six months, we don't presume that you'll have to file a federal habeas, and it'll be done on a one-by-one -one basis. Let's just make this class-wide and simple, and after six months, you can just get automatically a bond hearing. Yes, it would be a much simpler, easier-to-use framework, but the court said none of that is actually written anywhere, and so courts can't make it up, and so that's why the foreign nationals in this case lost. Let's talk about the second case, where it becomes more difficult to challenge immigration policies in court because you can't do it based on a class action. So Correct. tell us about the second case, what happened there? The facts right. in first. The, in the second case, it's basically similar facts where you have people coming in from Mexico who are detained again after reentering the United States, and they're making basically the same claim again, that they're entitled to bond hearings after six months of detention, and they're trying to do it as a class, as opposed to one person trying to make precedent for themselves. They're doing it as a class so that they can basically get a nationwide decision that would say nationwide, everybody going through this process gets a bond hearing if they're still detained after six months. If the government hasn't figured out whether they're going to give them this relief or not after six months, they can't just keep them detained forever. They have to give them a bond hearing after six months. And so in addition to the merits of this claim, which we talked about two seconds ago in the other case, the uh, Johnson versus Artiaga Martinez case, this case, which is the Garland versus Aleman Gonzalez case, was again one where in the lower courts they said that class action relief was available, and the Department of Justice appealed this. And this was the, the Trump administration appealed it, but the Biden administration kept the appeal going, meaning even they wanted to get rid of these class action lawsuits. And what really came to bear is a statute which actually says, it's called 8 U.S.C. Section 1252, that federal courts do not have jurisdiction to enjoin or restrain the operation of provisions of the INA, and it gives a list of them. And so then the question is, well, does that mean then that they can't? They can't enjoin that. And so this was literally a huge semantics debate, which is, 
the people who wanted to have this ability to do class-wide injunction said, yes, of course you can't enjoin a statute if that's the actual correct reading of that statute, meaning, of course, you can enjoin an illegal reading of the statute. What this says is you just can't enjoin a legal reading of the statute. So I still get to enjoin any statute that's illegal. And what the majority opinion said and what the government said and what the people who prevailed said said, no, 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 no. This means you can't even attempt to get an injunction of this statute. It doesn't matter whether the statute, you we're debating whether it's legal or not. You're doing something extra there. What this is saying is we don't even have jurisdiction to try for an attempt to determine whether that statute is legal or not legal on a class-wide basis. What has to happen is an individual person has to make that claim, and great, if they get all the way up to the Supreme Court and they get a decision saying something, well, then that will be the way that that applies nationally. But otherwise, that decision will just apply to that one person, or it might apply to that circuit if it goes to the Circuit Court of Appeals, but you're not going to be able to get a nationwide injunction of certain statutes in the INA by doing a district court nationwide class action trying to enjoin the detention and deportation provisions of the INA. So in this case, this was six to three down ideological lines. Justice Sonia Sotomayor wrote the dissent and said, I respectfully dissent from the court's blinkered analysis that elevates piecemeal dictionary definitions and policy concerns over plain meaning and context. I mean, she was basically very powerfully trying to say that at the end of the day, if you have an illegal version of a statute, there's no way that you can write a statute that prevents an injunction of an illegal version of the statute. And that the court was taking the way the statute was written too literally and saying that the Congress can can literally ban jurisdictionally any lawsuit in immigration in any manner in which it is written. And what Justice Sotomayor was trying to say with the dissent is, no, that's not true. There's no way you can ban lawsuits into trying to say that a statute is illegal. Now, what's a very interesting flip side to this case And now we're going to see whether these are consistently held beliefs by the court or not, is that a lot of the lawsuits that are being filed by the state of Texas and by other states are trying to do the exact same thing that these lawsuits were trying to do. So either they're going to now come up with some post hoc rationale why the state of Texas can keep going and filing their own lawsuits that are not individual immigrant lawsuits challenging certain statutes, or all of those are going to be dismissed too, which will mean that the Biden administration for now, and then some other administration later, will be able to have carte blanche interpretations of how they want to administer these statutes. So that's, to me, going to be the most interesting part to see, is are we going to start seeing courts bending over backwards to try to distinguish this, or is this literally going to shut down all of these lawsuits where people are trying to make programmatic changes to immigration in cases where there is not an individual immigrant whose rights are at stake. So then this might apply. We might see this in the Remain in Mexico case, which the court has yet to issue the decision in. Absolutely. We could see this in a bunch of cases. 
And we're going to have to wait and see how this court wants to apply that and how lower courts want to apply that, because what this is saying is basically there's a subset of statutes, and they involve the detention and removal of non-citizens. And what this is saying is in those statutes involving the detention and removal of non-citizens, you've got to do that within the individual case of a non-citizen. And by the way, that doesn't mean you can't get national application. You can. But what has to happen is, in order to get national application, is it has to go to the Supreme Court. Or if not, you'll get circuit court application or district court application. But what you can't do is get a nationwide class action that's done in one district because you had a class action certified. It has to be done in an individual case. And so what that means for the state of Texas and all these other places is they don't have individual immigrants going through cases at all. And so it'll be very interesting if they will have any jurisdiction to be able to challenge these statutes or these processes that also deal with detention and removal, that they don't like the way the Biden administration is operating detention and removal, or will they be kicked out of court as well? That's going to be very fascinating to see. Will this decision have a lot of repercussions for immigrants and immigration advocates to challenge immigration policies in court? It will slow down the process in cases where there's a new policy that's announced on enforcement. And instead of being able to go to one court and get a nationwide injunction, you will actually have to find immigrant suffering and then go to all of those different courts where immigrants are suffering and try to get rulings in those circuits so that it doesn't apply in those particular circuits until you go to the Supreme Court. So that's going to be the big change. And then the other big change will be, what about if no immigrants are suffering? at all. So for instance, what if you're the state of Texas or the state of Louisiana and you're trying to file a lawsuit? Will you be able to actually do it since you're not actually representing anyone that's going through the process? And so that's what's going to be fascinating to see. And we'll find out soon in two to three weeks before the term ends. Leon, stay with me. Coming up, we'll discuss a case the Supreme Court threw out where some Republican-led states were trying to take the administration to court over its rescission of the Trump public charge rule. You're listening to Bloomberg. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. 
Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. In 2020, the Biden administration engaged in some legal gamesmanship in rescinding a hot-button Trump immigration policy, the so-called public charge rule, and then drafting its own rule without following administrative law procedure, leaving a tangled legal aftermath. Arizona and other Republican-led states took the administration to court over the rule change, and during oral arguments, Supreme Court justices across the ideological spectrum appeared annoyed with the administration's legal maneuvers. Here are Justices Samuel Alito and Elena Kagan. I I congratulate whoever it is in the Justice Department or the executive branch who devised this strategy and was able to implement it with military precision uh, to effect uh, the uh, removal of the issue from our docket and to sidestep notice and comment rulemaking. We shouldn't be greenlighting that behavior for your administration or any other administration, all right? And, 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 and it, on that assumption, what should be the remedy, because it, it just seems as though you're here and saying, you know, you can just tell us to go home and, and, and nothing's going to happen to us and everybody will just do it the next time. This week, the Supreme Court appeared to throw its hands up and dismissed the case. I've been talking to immigration law expert Leon Fresco of Holland and Knight. The decision was one sentence long and said the state's petition seeking review was dismissed as improvidently granted. So basically saying we shouldn't have taken this case in the first place. But do we know why they dismissed the case? There's basically a pretty good indication in the two-page concurrence where Justices Robert Thomas, Alito, and Gorsuch actually explain in their concurrence why they think this case needed to be sent back. And that is because at the end of the day, there were too many issues that were wrapped up around this case. And one could see that during the oral argument where the justices were all over the place. So just to give you some context, this was originally a case about whether the Trump public charge rule was legal or not. And there were a bunch of courts that said that it was legal. And there was only one court that said it wasn't legal. And the Supreme Court had actually let that public charge rule go into effect. But then what happened was that President Biden reversed the public charge rule and said there's this one court that says in Illinois that the public charge rule is illegal. We agree with this one court in in Illinois, so we're just going to not use the Donald Trump public charge rule. We're going to acquiesce in the decision of this Illinois court. And so now when the state tried to intervene 
in that case so that they could say, no, 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 that ruling is incorrect and we should be allowed to move forward. The court was sort of all over the place because they said, well, wait a second, now there's a new Joe Biden public charge rule. And so there's issues of mootness, there's issues of standing and all of these other things. So there are so many issues and none of them were the ones about whether states can intervene that the court just said, forget it. Let's just start from scratch here since there's a new public charge rule. And if the state wants to sue on this new public charge rule, they can go ahead and do that. So then this doesn't have anything to do with whether states can intervene in a case like this? Well, the original reason for granting certiorari in this case was whether the states could intervene in challenging what President Biden had done, which was to acquiesce to that one district court decision in Illinois. But what the court said is so much has happened since that, that now this case is all over the place. Now Biden actually changed the rule. So what difference would it make if we allowed them to intervene? Because what are you left to sue about if the rule has already changed? And so what they all agreed to was, look, let's just dismiss this case and move on with our lives. So does this give the Biden administration or any other administration a roadmap for the future? So it's a rare situation because it can only happen in the exact situation like this, where what happens is somebody sues and you just accept the decision you want to accept. So, yes, you could actually do that always. You could always accept a decision from a court that you like and then just do that instead of reversing a regulation by notice and comment. The only difference is that usually in those kinds of lawsuits, the states would have had an opportunity to intervene from the beginning. And if they don't intervene, then it's going to be their fault, and that's the end. Here the problem was because those lawsuits were being defended by the Trump administration, the states felt no need to intervene, And so it was only when Biden got elected and acquiesced to this much, much later that the states came in very late in the game and tried to intervene and resuscitate this case. And so that's why the courts are saying this is so unique and kind of like a unicorn set of facts. There's no need for us to really get involved in this. Thanks so much, Leon. That's Leon Fresco of Holland and Knight. The January 6th committee focused at the last hearing on introducing evidence of pressure former President Donald Trump put on his vice president, Mike Pence, to delay or reject the certification of Joe Biden's election victory, continuing to make its case against Trump. Joining me is attorney Jordan Strauss, Kroll Managing Director and Kroll Institute Fellow. Give me your general impression of the hearings to this point. I think my general impression is This was, in fact, the most complex investigation in history, and we've heard that from everyone involved in it. We've seen it from the committee's activities, you know, over a thousand interviews in 18 months. I'm personally just bowled over by how much they were able to get done in what really is a relatively short amount of time. Um, And by the way, I think that's a sentiment shared by the attorney general and the deputy attorney general who, you know, between them were on Enron and the Murrah federal bombing, right, to the most other most complex cases in history. I think it's really hard to conduct very, very complex investigations. You know, we we do this for businesses all the time and it's, it's tough. And what's even harder than running the investigation and finding the facts is explaining the facts. And I think the committee has done 
a very compelling job so far explaining in pretty simple terms the findings from this really complex investigation. Committee member Jamie Raskin said on CNN, I suppose our entire investigation is a referral of crimes, both to the Department of Justice and to the American people. What did you see in the presentations that you would consider a sort of pitch to DOJ to prosecute Trump? So on that, it is clear that the Justice Department is listening and watching. We know that because Attorney General Garland said that the January 6th team is going to be watching very carefully the hearings and because he said he will be watching very carefully the hearings. The number of statutes that could be in play are pretty large. Uh, And again, the facts are so, so complex. I think it's hard to say until they've closed their case and until they've finished presenting information, who could be charged with what. And I think it's also very important to remember that the standard of proof in a criminal case is beyond a reasonable doubt. Now, you know, when I was at the Justice Department and working on complex investigations, I can say that the level of certainty, not just of guilt, but also that guilt could be proven to a jury beyond a reasonable doubt for a prosecutor before they before they move forward, needed to be a hundred percent in the minds of the prosecutor, even though that's not the legal standard, right? It needed to be that high before they move forward. When you're dealing with very old statutes here, so if you look at like seditious conspiracy, there's only really a handful of examples, some of them rising to constitutional levels in the last 50 years. I'm not aware of a single case where insurrection, where the crime of insurrection was charged in the last 150 years, right? So you're dealing with really complex statutes that have really close adjacencies to core constitutional freedoms, right? It's okay to publicly disagree with the court case. It's okay to publicly take a political position on something that's not supported by the facts. It's not okay to then say, you know, we're going to storm the court because we disagree with this court order, right? So there's a lot of nuance here. And I think that the department thus far has taken a very careful approach to charging and charging decisions that's, you know, consistent with, with our old friend from law school, the rule of lenity, right? The candidate of construction that says you have to look at criminal cases narrowly. And I think that's going to continue. And I think that unless there is really, really incredibly, incredibly strong evidence that's presented by the committee or that's adduced through some other investigative method, I, I think it's unlikely that the department would elect to move forward with charges that are that novel against someone that that senior. Might they consider a charge like obstructing an official proceeding? You have this issue of the complexity of the facts, the complexity of the law, and the application of those complex facts to, in some cases, kind of unsettled areas of the law. The uh, obstruction of, uh, of a congressional proceeding uh, is something that a lot of the insurrectionists and rioters have been charged with uh, and something that a lot of them have pled guilty on. There is this one outstanding district court case suggesting that uh, that the, the U.S. Attorney's Office has read that law in an overly and unconstitutionally broad way. Uh, there are six other district court judges who have, who have found the other way. So I think that's something that will kind of go up on appeal. Uh, but again, you know, these, these legal issues which in some cases are complex and in some cases I think are relatively simple, right? You don't really want to bring an edge case when you're dealing with conduct that is so close to constitutionally protected behavior. 
for the first time, right? I, th I think that there are probably other older statutes which might be a little bit more on point, but there isn't really the level and, and, and kind and quality of precedent to, to guide charging decisions that, that there is for more contemporary statutes. That makes things hard. As far as the Georgia investigation, do you think the path is clearer there? I think that because the Georgia investigation involves Georgia state law, also ultimately involve the Georgia jury, there may be more direct paths to prosecuting individuals who, if they applied inappropriate pressure to do something illegal, uh, particularly for, for the Secretary of State. Uh, again, those are laws that don't approach being constitutional in nature in some of the ways that that, that federal laws do. So it might be a, I don't want to say it's a, no investigation or criminal case is ever straightforward, but there might be a more straightforward path there. Of course, no one has ever prosecuted a former president. Do you think that the Justice Department is looking for more than they would normally look for in a case, more than just, you know, being convinced that someone's guilty and that you can prove it because they know what's at stake? So when there are high-profile or high-consequence criminal defendants, and this was certainly the case when I, when I was at DOJ, uh, and I think it's always been the case, They're, they always receive more attention. So be it a high-profile counterterrorism case or a high-profile uh, securities fraud case, it's always going to re receive extra layers. One of the reasons that it receives extra layers is when you're doing something high-consequence, you want to make sure that, that the senior leadership knows. Uh, and, you, you know, you might want to stress test the, the theory of the case a little bit more than usual. So, you know, more memos, more meetings, right? One of the reasons might be that you're making a novel application of the law or you're using a law like seditious conspiracy that's just not used very often. And I should know, you know, the last time there was a seditious conspiracy charge, uh, the department had the seditious conspiracy charge dismissed by a judge in Michigan, right? They didn't, they didn't even get to a point where, um, where, they could, uh, where they could fully try it. So, yeah, I, you know, you combine that with the complexity of the fact-finding, the fact that this is going to need to be presented to a grand jury and explained to a grand jury who's then going to need to indict. And I think, again, the January 6th committee is doing an extraordinary job of explaining this really complex series of events, right? But that has to happen to a grand jury and then to, uh, to uh, a district court jury. Yes, I, I do think that, that they're probably receiving additional attention. Uh, that said, Judge Garland has said that the approach of the department is going to be to work its way up and to bring more complex and more meaningful cases as the more complex and more meaningful facts emerge. And they, they've done just that so far. I, I mean, I, I think that there's just this, this balance of what a lot of people want to see happen versus what should happen versus what can happen. And this is probably the highest, one of the highest profile criminal cases in history, but dealing with the dynamics of that, I think, are not, are not unusual. And we saw this in, uh, you know, the bank collapses after 2008 with, with Enron and the corporate fraud in the, the um, you know, in, in, in 2001 and 2002, in some of the early terrorism cases. And I do think, you know, this is a Justice Department that has said it's going to move really deliberately and really carefully. And over time, I think that is probably the correct approach. Thanks, Jordan. That's Jordan Strauss, Kroll Managing Director. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. 
Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. Plus.